welcome. Welcome to all the moms and everybody else as well. But today is a special day that we generally, uh, in our culture, recognize the value, the worth, the work, and just extend a thank you to those who are mothers. Now, the past two years, as uh, we have gone through different Mother's Days, all the men are like, oh no, I came on the wrong Sunday, right? Because normally what I do on Mother's Day is I tell all the men the things that the moms wish I would say all throughout the year, right? So guys just gets unloaded on. You get a break this year. You get a break this year, all right? You came at a good time, all right? So um, not going to do this this year. This is not necessarily a Mother's Day sermon per se, but if you want to apply it to mothers and uh, men, husbands, as we work through the passage, be this man, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, and all and on and on. Be that man for your wife. Sons, daughters, be this child for your mother. The Proverbs, I don't have time to uh, go on this, but the Proverbs say that children are a gift from the Lord and how you raise them can either determine whether they are a gift or a curse later in life, that they will bring pain if not raised well. Be this child that is a blessing, that is a gift to your mother. Love her. Uh, every holiday we celebrate, every holiday we celebrate, it's worth mentioning because uh, the number grows and grows, it seems every holiday, there is a group of people who are kind of on the outskirts of that main focus of mothers that are grieving with the holiday. It brings not joy, but pain, and it's worth recognizing that as well. Uh, pain, how so? There are mothers who, in a crowd this size, have suffered miscarriages, many of them. Mothers who have lost children, those who cannot be mothers as a result of the effects of the fall, who struggle with that. And it's worth recognizing that hurt and also to point you towards the promises of Christ that there is coming a day, there is coming a day when every tear will be wiped away. When there will be no more crying or pain or sorrow anymore. For old things have passed away and we will say, behold, new things have come. And we say, Lord, come quickly. Amen? Amen? Amen. And so, to you, I want to encourage you. The Lord is present with you. I want to ask you a question. If you were writing a letter, perhaps to a friend that you know was in a hard position, a hard circumstance, if you were going to write that letter to them, and you were going to now begin to wrap this letter up, what would you write to them? What would you say? What types of encouragements would you leave them with, the last message you want to leave ringing in your dear friend's ear in this hard circumstance? What, what would it be? Think about that. Maybe would you tell them, hey, just, you know, trust God. Maybe you'd say something along the lines of, you know, believe in yourself, don't give up. Or many other things you could write. What would you say? I'm going to propose to you that's exactly what our section of Scripture has before us this morning. If you remember, Paul, we've been working through Timothy. Believe it or not, we're going to wrap up Timothy next week. We'll be done with the letter of Timothy. We've been in it since January. So we're going to be done. It takes us about 
five and a half months or so to get through it, we're going to be done. And Paul is writing to young Timothy in a hard position, a difficult outpost, if you will, and encouraging him how to interact with these leaders of the church and with the church that had gone off course. And this whole letter, he's been giving him instructions. And by virtue or by necessity, not just Timothy, but the church, as this letter would be read aloud to the church. He's been giving instructions to Timothy to the church. He's covered a lot of things. I mean, you've got all of church leadership and church uh, ecclesiology proper, if you will, in a nutshell of a letter. He's covered a lot of things, and now he's in the last chapter. Paul's going to start to wrap it up. He's going to bring it all together and bring it all to a nice close. What is he going to say to Timothy? What is his final words that he wants to be ringing in the ears of this young pastor amidst hardship and conflict? He's going to remind him of who he is in Christ, O man of God. He's going to remind him of the presence of God, of the power of God, and of the promise of God to return again. That is what he wants ringing in the ears of this young pastor. I think it will encourage you as we walk through it. That is my hope and that is my prayer. So let's pray to that end. Uh, Heavenly Father, you are the only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You dwell in unapproachable light that no one has ever seen or can see. You alone have immortality, and so we come before you, not in our own name, but in the name of your only Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask, not for our sakes, but for yours, for your glory, I ask that your word would feed your people, that you would build them up in love, Father, that only you can do this. The aim of our charge this morning is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Lord, would you create that this morning? Lord, the families here who are hurting, mothers who are hurting, fathers who are hurting, spouses who are hurting, children who are hurting, I pray that this this passage, your words would be life to them. Would you satisfy them with your goodness this morning? And would you get all the glory in Jesus' name? Amen. All right, I have four points. We'll see how it goes, whether we get through them all in a timely manner or not. Number one, number one, pursue the things of God. Pursue the things of God, number one. Number two, keep the commandments of God. Keep the commandments of God. Number three, await the coming of God. Await the coming of God. And number four, remember the character of God. Remember the character of God. Number one, pursue the things of God. He starts this passage off with, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Anytime, you know, you start your Bible reading or a passage with the word but, 
You already know we're contrasting something that went before. What specifically in this passage? Paul is contrasting the pursuits of false teachers, of those who have wandered from the faith, with what Timothy is to do, what he wants young Timothy to be actively engaged in. And he has laid out those false teachers' pursuits in verses 4 through 5 of this chapter and 9 and 10. And he says, I quote, verse 4, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. That is those who don't agree with the sound words of the gospel. That word sound is healthy words, healthy doctrine. Now Paul's also going to start to revisit some of those foundation, that framework he laid in chapter 1. He's already mentioned a lot of these things, and now he's going to bring it all back together. He says, if anyone doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, that person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Under, how would you like that to be said about you? You don't understand anything, right? Just so you know, you understand nothing. I love John Bunyan's The Pilgrim Pro, Pilgrim's Progress, and he names all of his characters uh, very... You have exactly, you know exactly what he's talking about when he names them. One of them's Mr. Pliable, you know, Mr. Mr. Worldly, okay, the town of Vanity Fair, the city of destruction, right? So he names all these people, and in one of them, one of the women's name that his wife encounters is Miss Know-Nothing. Miss Know-Nothing, all right? That's what Paul says. They know nothing, He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And what he means by that is worldly gain. And he goes to verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many, many pangs. That's the backdrop of our passage. But, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee all of these things. Right? It is this, this pattern of false teaching and this behavior that accords with not godliness but ungodliness that brings all of these things to bear. Think about this. Envy, dissension. Look how how evil and bad these things sound. Slander, evil suspicions. Do you know anybody that's characterized like this? Have you ever met anybody like this? There are many And he was speaking specifically even in the context of the church. He says, you, Timothy, flee these things, O man of God. Don't you love that passage, that verse, man of God? He's pleading with him. He didn't just say, but as for you, flee these things. As for you, O man of God, flee these things. What is Paul doing? He's reminding in his closing words to Timothy, he wants him to remember, who are you, Timothy? Whatever else you may be, 
Timothy, whatever else charges may be laid against you by the false teachers as you seek to be obedient, whatever types of identifiers you add to yourself, remember this, Timothy, you are a man of God. Don't forget the grace that transformed you into that man of God. Paul's visited this in chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, verse 13? Though formerly, Paul speaking, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Amen. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. See, Timothy, once you were a man of sin. Once you were a child of disobedience, a son of wrath. But now, but now, you are a man of God. Don't forget, this is who you are. Christian, this morning, this is now all of you, not just Timothy. This morning, Christian, this is your core identity. This is what makes you, you. You are not a mother first. You are a Christian first. You are a man or woman of God. That is what is spoken over you, and that changes every other description of you. You are not just a mother. You are a mother who is a woman of God, and that makes all the difference in your mothering, does it not? You are not just a child with a parent, a teenager in high school. You are a child of the living God, and that changes everything about how you go to school, the homework you do, the tests you take, or the homework you don't do. Whatever you are, you are primarily a child of God by repentance and faith, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for sinners. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. It's when we forget it that we fall into many, many hazards and hardships that we forget that we stand in grace as sons and children of God. So whatever you were, beloved, this morning, whatever you were before your conversion, how did you identify yourself before your conversion? Whatever that was, that person died with Christ on a cross. And the life he now lives is your life. It is your newness of life that you will walk in forevermore. You are now a man or woman of God. As such, flee these things and pursue the things of God. Now, it's possible to flee habits that were destructive from your former life and go to new habits that are destructive in other ways, all right? Don't do that either. Don't just flee these things and run to other things that are more harmful. Rather, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And you may say, but, Pastor, if I'm new in Christ, why do I need to flee these old things in the first place? Why do I need to flee these things if I'm new in Christ? I would say because while your old nature has died, it still bites. It still bites. 
Many of you who are from here have maybe encountered a lovely creature in our islands called a centipede. Yes? Yes, I take it many of you have. Uh, who here has been bitten by a centipede? Raise your hand. All right. Who never wants to be bitten by a centipede again? All right. All right. It hurts. Those little buggers hurt. Now, everybody here knows, or maybe some of you know, Warren actually showed me this. Thank you, Warren. Uh, if you cut off the head of a centipede, or you even cut them in half, what happens? They still keep on going. They still go. You just cut them off, and they just keep on moving. And even if you were to cut them in half, and you picked up the side with the head, it still bites. Still, it's dying, and it will die. But for a time, it still bites. This is your old nature. This is your sin that has died. It has been severed. The power of sin has been severed. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are free. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. However, that old nature still bites. Don't even play with it. Don't even play with it. Some of you are going to go home and find a centipede and torture that poor thing now. <laughs> Don't play with it. Don't play with it. So don't just flee these things, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith. Pursue righteousness and godliness. Righteousness has more to do with this kind of what we sometimes call that horizontal dynamic, that horizontal sphere, your relationships with other people. Are you a righteous person? Do you deal justly with others? And then they say godliness has to do with that vertical sphere, right? You're not only in right standing with other people around you, but you're in right standing with God, and you continue to walk in that right standing. Righteousness, godliness, faith. This actually may be translated better, not faith in the sense of our confession of faith, but faithfulness, rather, faithfulness. Are you dependable? Are you faithful in the things that you've been called to? One pastor said the greatest ability, or one of the greatest abilities, is dependability. It's a rare quality these days. Are you somebody who keeps your word? Is your yes, yes, and your no, no? When you tell somebody you're going to do something, can they count on that? Are you faithful? Are you dependable? Are you dependable in your marriage vows? Are you dependable in your responsibilities as a son or daughter? Are you a dependable student or worker or employee? Christians should be faithful in all of these things. Love. This goes back to really 1 Timothy 1.5, right? The aim of our charge is love. Love. That's the aim of our charge, love. That, and as Jim said, uh, this agape love, this love that is sacrificial, that gives itself on the behalf of the thing loved, not because of any inherent quality in that, but because of the overflowing nature of the believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Steadfastness. We might say patience or long-suffering or endurance, perhaps. I have a fear that maybe we define patience in an unbiblical manner or endurance in an unbiblical manner. This idea of steadfastness is not just enduring or waiting and complaining at the same time. 
right? Like, okay, I'm being patient. Um, I'm grumbling within my heart about whatever this circumstance is, but I'm being patient because I really have no choice right now. No, it's not just waiting while we're complaining, but rather, but rather, steadfastness is this disposition of your heart that accepts challenging circumstances as under the control of a loving Father and so receives them with thanksgiving and joy. That's biblical steadfastness. Not a waiting and complaining, but encountering difficult, hard trials and recognizing that they are under the loving control of your heavenly Father and so receives them with thanksgiving and joy. That is a little bit closer to the biblical idea of steadfastness. And gentleness. Gentleness. Pursue gentleness. Do you pursue these things? Pursue them diligently with a single-minded focus? Are you gentle? Are you gentle? Are you known for being gentle? The opposite of this would actually carry the connotation of being overbearing. That you're overbearing. Is that you? Are you known for being overbearing or for being gentle. I think about those big dogs, you know, like a bull mastiff, right? You know, like a bull mastiff. They're known for what? For being big and, and drooling, right? No, actually, they've been, they've had, they've tried to breed the aggression out of them. So bull mastiffs aren't actually known for biting, but they're actually good guard dogs. And their intent was that they would pin down an intruder and not bite them, but just hold them there because they're huge and they can Right? A bull master. They're just gentle. They're great with children. They're big and oafy and dopey, but they're very gentle. Uh, are you gentle in your disposition? And if the answer is no, pursue these things, man of God. Pursue these things, woman of God. Warren Wiersbe said, we must cultivate these graces of the Spirit in our lives. We must cultivate them in our lives, or else we'll only be known for what we oppose rather than for what we propose. All right? Christians, sometimes we can get this uh, air of negativity. I'm just against this. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. This is bad. That's sin. Don't do it. Negative, negative. And we become known for the things that we oppose rather than for the grace of God and the good news that we proclaim. He says we must cultivate these things in our lives to avoid that. Fight the good fight of faith. So pursue those things and fight the good fight of faith. Where does this come up again? Chapter 1, verse 18. Wage the good warfare, Timothy. Wage the good warfare. Do you realize that your Christian life, your Christian life is a fight of faith? Everywhere it's characterized in the Scripture, in response to your sin and your longevity, your faith, your walk, your walk with Christ is characterized as a fight of faith. You should think in your mind, if you're thinking of beaches, I know all of you are thinking of that. If you're thinking of beaches, you should think in your mind more like Ho'okipa or Jaws, more like a swim at Ho'okipa or Jaws, less like Baby Beach. Less like Baby Beach in Paia, where the water's just calm. There's a nice, nice reef blocking the waves, right? It's just flat and smooth. That's not your Christian life. 
Your Christian life is more the fight of faith, like in Jaws. Wave after wave after wave. And you say, that sucks. Unless you have a surfboard and you're empowered by the Spirit of God. And then you get to ride those waves and that's the ride of your life, right? That's the Christian walk, right? Is it hard? Yes. Is there reward? Yes. Your life is a fight of faith. Sadly, many fight a good fight, not of the faith, but of the flesh. Fight the good fight of faith, beloved. The underlying word underneath this word fight is actually a word familiar. You'll recognize the root, I hope, uh, in the Greek word here is agon. Agon. You recognize that yet? Agony. Agonize. Pain. Literally, you could translate this, agonize the good agony. Oh, what a faith. Agonize the good agony of faith. What does it look like to agonize the good agony? You might wonder, what does it look like? The picture here you could use would be a boxer. Right? Maybe you guys just saw Creed or something, right? The new movie with uh, Sylvester Stallone, the Rocky, the latest, you know, Rocky 10 or something, wherever we're in, right? Uh, the new movie Creed, right? A boxer who, who's boxing and he enters the ring and it's the championship round and ding, 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 round one, round two, round three, final round, it comes and now they've traded blows, they've thrown jabs and punches, they've received punches, his eyes swollen and shut, you can barely see throughout them, they're sucking air, body hurts, final round, your shoulders are burning on fire such that you can barely bring them up again, and yet you have one more round to go. That is agonizing the good agony, and you go and you finish the round, and you stand firm till the end. That, that is fighting the good fight, agonizing the good agony. And if many of you want to know what that feels like, you're like, dude, I've never really been in a boxing match, all right? Go hit a heavy bag at a gym for about five minutes straight, nonstop, and you'll know exactly how it feels to agonize the good agony. And this is the fight of faith. Now, they say that's a great illustration. That sounds good. But what does that look like practically now, Pastor? That doesn't help me tomorrow. So I want to help you tomorrow. So I thought of some ways that it looks like to help you agonize the good agony. So what does that look like tomorrow or today? This is what it looks like practically. It looks like continuing to pray for and love that spouse of yours that regularly sins against you. That's what it looks like to agonize the good agony. You say, that, that's hard. Agon. Agon. It's hard. It looks like forgiving your brother or your sister in Christ who has sinned against you 489 times, and it looks like you forgive them one more time and act as if that time was the first time. It looks like resolving to fight that sin that you've been struggling with for 5, 10, 15 years and the power of the Spirit, even when you failed time and time again. It looks like humbling yourself and confessing your sin to that person you sinned against and seek their forgiveness, even, even if you think they're going to take advantage of you for doing so. 
It looks like becoming vulnerable and confessing your struggle to another believer or believers and enlist their help and encouragement to help you fight the good fight instead of fighting it alone and in secrecy. And much, much more. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. We're going to pass over this one this morning. We're going to cover that one on Wednesday night. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, mostly for time's sake. And we'll move on. Number two, keep the commandment of God. Keep the commandment of God. I charge you, verse 13, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about, Paul's given Timothy another charge like this already in the book, right? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, right? Uh, This like heavy, weighty charge. What I want to focus on this morning is that, that second half of this point. Keep the commandment of God. That's assumed, by the way, that the commandment is of God, so you're not going to see that in your text. Keep the commandment of God. I only want to point that out for one reason. One is that it makes a difference how you respond based on who's giving the command, does it not? The one who issues the directive, it makes a difference who that person is, right? If Pastor Randy tells you, hey guys, make sure you stop at that stop sign in the driveway on your way out, all right? Stop completely. Thanks. Right? Just roll through it, all right? But if now there's an officer standing there and he says, make sure you stop at that stop sign, you're going to listen, right? Or most of you. Most of you are going to take it a little bit more serious. So if you're at work and perhaps a coworker or somebody on equal setting says, hey, can you do this for me? You're probably going to finish up what you were doing first, and then you might go help them or you might not. But if the CEO walks in, the owner of the organization walks in, says, hey, I want you to do this, you're going to drop everything, and you're going to do what? Whatever it is they want you to do. It makes a difference who issues the command. And this is, in effect, what Paul is telling Timothy to do, is encouraging Timothy with, keep the commandment. I charge you in the presence of God to keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it is no less than God who is issuing these commands. When I tell you men and women of God to pursue these things and flee these things, don't take that as the authority of Pastor Randy. Take that as the authority of God. Because that is God who is saying it. Now, this isn't merely an intimidating type of way, but a reassuring type of way. How so? He says, God, who gives life to all. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all. Remember where he's writing to. He's writing to Ephesus, right? Remember, Ephesus produced the great book of 
Ephesians, Paul wrote to them, the great book of Ephesians. Do you think that the words of his first letter to the Ephesians would still potentially be on his mind as he's writing these words? I think there's a good chance they would be. And I think that Paul would clearly have in mind Ephesians chapter 2. But you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Don't you love verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. Who gave that life, Timothy? God. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. To all. He's going to return to this idea of life when he says, Christ who alone possesses immortality. That's meant to encourage Timothy to press on in this hard task because he has none other than the presence and power of God at his side. God is able to give life to these dead people, these false teachers. Press on in the proclamation of the good word that I've entrusted to you. Preach it because God can give life and does give life through the preaching and faithfulness of the word of God. And he is with you. Believer, what practical encouragement is this to you? How does this encourage you to fight the good fight and keep the commandment of God? You may say, but pastor, my life is hard. You don't know what I'm going through right now. And I'd say, you're right. I don't know what you're going through. And I would say, but you have forgotten the nature of the one whom you serve. You are in the presence of God who gives life to all things. He is the giver of life to all. It may be that the very challenge you're going through right now turns out to be the very means of God to grant you life and the one inflicting your harm life as well. Don't give up. God is with you. We'll move on and we'll cover... Paul's words about Christ making the good confession also on Wednesday. Number three, await the coming of God. Await the coming of God. Keep the commandment of God unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a time marker. You see that word until. Until. That is a duration of time. I want you to keep this commandment and continue to do these things. How long do I pursue these things and flee these things? Until Christ comes again. That's how long. Our Lord Jesus Christ, until his appearing. That idea of appearing is actually glorious manifestation. Epiphany is the word underneath that. Epiphany. It's a glorious manifestation. It's not, you recognize when Christ returns again, it's not just going to be an appearing. Oh, look, there he is. It's going to be a glorious manifestation. You're going to say, oh, you're not going to say anything. You're not going to know what to say. You're not going to have words that can capture the glory of that event when Christ comes. And my question is, is he your Lord this morning? Wait until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing you should ask because it will be glorious whether he is your Lord or not, but it will not be good if he is not your Lord. 
Are you a follower of Christ this morning? Does that characterize you? Because he is coming again, and I want his coming to be for you good news. Is he your Lord? Maybe you say, yes, yes, Pastor Randy, I, I want... I want to see that. Let me ask you this. Does his appearing, his promise of returning again, does that motivate you to holy living? Does that drive you with a passion to spend your life and labor diligently for the kingdom of God? Do you think about that? Does the promise of his return rest on your soul daily? And if so, how does it affect your daily plans? Your weekly plans, your monthly plans, your yearly plans, your five-year goals, ten-year goals. All that to say, believer, beloved, are you living in light of the return of Christ? This is actually something you see over and over for Paul, that the promise of Christ's coming, the promise that this life will be over soon, motivated Paul, drove him, and encouraged him through times of hardship and darkness. Is this true of you? Merely being alive doesn't mean you're waiting or anticipating his return. It's something you think about. It's something you pray about. It's something you look forward to. Or if we're honest, on the other end of the spectrum, if we're honest, there's some of you possibly in here that don't look forward to his coming again. You don't want him to come back yet. Maybe because there's things in your life that you're hoping to experience first. Or... Maybe because whatever you're doing right now, whatever you're engaged in right now in your life is something that you know if he came back right now, you would be greatly ashamed. So you're kind of maybe hoping that he would not appear this morning and hoping that somehow you can get your life in order so that you can be found honoring him when he comes. If we're honest, some of us are in that category, are we not? In any case, if that's you, then whatever it is you want to do, that reason why you don't want him to come, right? I, wanna, I don't want him to come because I want to do this, or I don't want him to come because he might find me doing this. Whatever those things are, those are a good place to start to find the true love of your heart, and it's not God. If that's you, and you say, man, I don't want Christ to come back yet for any reason, and whatever that reason is, is the true love of your heart. And it's not God. It's not God. It may be, as you ask those questions of what you truly love, it may reveal that you need to come forward this morning or this week and repent and pray and seek help with that struggle. Or maybe in your here and here, unless you're like, I'm not really caught doing anything. I'm not doing anything wrong. I just don't think about the appearing of Christ much. It's just not something, a reality that presses on my soul. What I want to encourage you is pray that the Lord would impress this on you, beloved. Pray that he would motivate you with this, that you would begin to crave it and long for it. Why? Because when this happens, when that glorious manifestation happens, you receive your inheritance. 
this life and its hardships are done, and you will fight the good fight of faith no more. You will rest for all of eternity with your Savior. I want that to come. I want the Lord to fan to flame my desire for his coming. And then last, number four, remember the character of God. Remember the character of God. Whew, I just don't know that I can do justice to this uh, closing doxology he gives here. Verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. Several sermons could probably unpack each of those titles and survey the scriptures. Suffice it to say, I will walk through each of them briefly and pray the Lord would stir in you a desire for your God. See, because it doesn't only make a difference that it comes from God. But as you know the character of the God you serve, that changes everything else. As you know the character of the one whose, whose appearance you are waiting for, it fuels that fire to see him again. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, Christ Jesus, unequaled in power, unparalleled in joy. The King of kings and Lord of lords, he has an unparalleled dominion. It expands forever and ever. He is in a class all to his own. He is not just a king, a high king. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone has immortality, this points to the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who alone, alone, he doesn't just have immortality, he is the only one who has immortality. There is life, beloved, in no other name. There is no life in the road of Buddha and enlightenment. There is no life through the many gods of the Hindu pantheon. There is no life in the false system and sciences of psychology, and that offers hope and life that you just look inside yourself and believe in yourself. It is bankrupt. There is no life in any other name than the name of Jesus Christ. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. So I ask you this morning, is your hope in Christ alone? For he alone has immortality. The disciples asked the question, where else can we go in John chapter 6? For you alone have the words of life. I want you to have life. It's only in Christ who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Our God is transcendent. He is as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. And yet, in Christ, he is imminent and near. 
He is the light of the world that came so that men may no longer walk in darkness, but in light. And John says, I can't wait for John. We're going to launch into John in June, so start reading it now. But John, the great prologue, and the life was the light of men. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Think about this passage next time as a word of warning. Next time you read a book or watch a movie about people who go to heaven and come back, and on and on. Think about this passage, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Next time you read books about people who go to heaven and come back, remember this and remember the words of Paul concerning false teachers. To him, to him alone, be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am at a loss with how to even magnify and exalt you in manners that are worthy of your glory with my tongue. So I pray that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, would do what what I cannot and stir the faith and love of believers and unbelievers for King Jesus this morning. And may we, in light of your character, in light of your promise to return, in light of what you have done in us and created us as men and women of God, may we live out of that reality. May we flee those ways of the flesh and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And may all people see that we are your disciples, and would you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.